for Luke chapter 2. So last week, um, we were in uh, the book of Matthew. <clears throat> we looked uh, more at this Christmas Revealed series, which we started last week. We have again today. We'll have again next uh, Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll look at the wise men and uh, their, uh, their Christmas revelation. And then Christmas Day, um, <clears throat> we'll just kind of have more of a celebration. Uh, but today, we're in Luke 2. Last week, we were in uh, Matthew chapter 1, which was re- we're really focusing, well, we did look at Luke as well with, with Mary's visitation from an angel. But uh, last week, we looked at Mary and Joseph specifically. And today, we want to look at the, uh, the shepherds, although we'll still uh, have Mary and Joseph uh, in this story as well. But we want to start with Luke chapter 2, uh, reading from verse 1. And I'm going to read the entire text. I don't normally, but for this we will, uh, so we can just uh, look at this uh, from a comprehensive viewpoint. Starting with verse 1, you know these, uh, a lot of these verses, you've heard them many times. And it came to pass, and those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered or taxed. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor, governing in Syria. Saul went to be registered, everyone to his own city, or at least the city of their uh, ancestral birth. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David. It was also called the city of David, uh, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered there with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger or an animal trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Don't we wish that was the case right now? You can see God's desire, though. Verse 15, so it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for giving us this story that we can understand your plan for humanity. And Lord, we pray this morning you would bless the teaching of your word, and Lord, each and every one of us would hear from your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when God called Abraham, 
At this point, that would have been a few thousand years before even the birth of Christ. But when God called Abraham, the world had no idea about it, did it? Nobody knew. I mean, it was just God spoke to Abraham. No one knew who Abraham was. He was Abram at the time. No one knew he would become Abraham. No one knew that nations would be birthed from his loins. No one knew any of that. It's a quiet little thing that took place. God knew it. Abraham knew it. When God called Moses, Moses was all alone, the backside of a desert. No one knew, just Moses and God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the stage, and you're going to be part of the play. No one knew. On the night that God announced the birth of his son, he doesn't tell it in Jerusalem. That was the holy city. That was where the temple was. He doesn't tell it in Rome, which would have been the powerful city at that time. He doesn't tell it to the rich and the powerful and the famous. He tells it to a group of shepherds living out in the fields. And the birth, it's not not this impressive announcement. Well, it is an impressive announcement, but I mean it's not done in the presence of impressive people. Just on the hillside. And the birth takes place not in one of the great cities of the world at that time, Bethlehem had about 1,000 people living in it at that time. Today, there's 25,000 people living in Bethlehem, about 1,000 at that time, maybe even less than 1,000. Small little town. Even the Bible talk calls it, you, know, you, you are the least among them. Out of you will come forth. In this quiet, humble setting is where God's redemptive plan Unfolds, And if you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in this Christmas Reveal series, Part 2, An Announcement from Heaven. An Announcement from Heaven. So we want to look first at, at, at these first few verses. Um, everyone's familiar within the days of Caesar Augustus, these, uh, these verses that are given that tell us how this transpired. Now, Caesar Augustus... He was famous for census taking. It's interesting, you, you sometimes, if you ever watch uh, like PBS or the BBC and, and they interview theologians, almost every time they interview someone, just put your filter on. Because sometimes these guys flat out lie. They either will just tell things that are not true or they are so just corrupted in their thinking that they will take the slightest thing and twist it. And so you'll actually have some theologians say, yeah, there, there, was, there was no evidence that there was a census taken. There was no evidence that there was a worldwide census taken. You'll hear this. If you haven't heard it yet, I promise if you ever watch like one of these kind of you know, network cable, BBC or National Geographic, and they talk about there'll be a two-hour special on the, uh, the, something about the Christ child or something like that. And there'll be a lot of misinformation. And they don't, don't, don't be impressed that they're from Princeton or Stanford or Oxford. Uh, I'm not speaking that all of them uh, that would, that would uh, you know, kind of manipulate the facts or, or not know the facts or call them facts when they're not, but there's a lot of this happens. And so you have to watch these things um, and understand that the world doesn't want this story. If, if you reject Christ, you don't want this story to be true. Because if it's true, you're responsible for what Jesus is ultimately going to present to each and every person. Amen? Amen. But Caesar Augustus, the fact is, he was famous for census taking. 
like many world leaders in, in history past, they kind of want to know how big their kingdom is. So he was famous for census taking. He took, uh, uh, some of them took many years to complete. One of the longest was when he took a census of Gaul, which is modern-day France. Some ancient Egyptian records actually do mention, some ancient Egyptian records uh, mention a worldwide census that took place in 8 B.C. Uh, now, that's important, that uh, 8 B.C., because you might say, well, that's got to be too soon for, for Christ. No, not, not actually. Um, the census, the, the worldwide census, so Egypt, northern Egypt, was under the control of the Roman Empire, too, during that time. And so that recording of a census is a recording of a Roman census that took place all over the world in 8 B.C. It likely didn't take place in Galilee until another two to four years later, because remember, the censuses took many years. It wasn't like today's highway system. It wasn't like today. I mean, it took, emissaries had to go out from city to city and city, and the census had to spread out from Rome. And it took a while to get to what would be the Palestine area, uh, the biblical area of Israel. So it takes place in 8 B.C., probably two to four years before it hits Judea. And Jesus' exact year of birth, we don't actually know the exact year, but many scholars believe that his birth is between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. 4 B.C. is closer uh, to our time by two years, but 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. is, is, is generally accepted as somewhere in there is the birth of Christ, and that would fit well within the context uh, of this worldwide census where the records in Egypt uh, record the one in 8 B.C., now, when we include uh, Matthew chapter 2 with Luke chapter 2, uh, we know that three specific rulers were in place when Jesus was born. Three specific rulers were in place. Uh, all three had to be in place at the same time. One was Caesar Augustus. One was Herod the Great, and the Herodian dynasty descends from him. There were no Herods until Herod the Great. Uh, the Herod, when Jesus is, is put on the cross, is Herod Antipas. That's later. But one is Herod the Great, uh, one is Caesar Augustus, and the last is this Quirinius of Syria. Uh, he, he would be the governor of the Syrian region there for the Roman Empire. Herod, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Herod had been given the title, listen to this, Herod had been given the title King of the Jews. Interesting, huh? Herod the Great had been given the title King of the Jews. Does that sound familiar to you? Herod the Great had been given the title of King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate gave him that. They conferred that title upon him. And that's no coincidence, is it? That Jesus, who really is the King of the Jews, was born while there was a man in Jerusalem given the title King of the Jews. A number of scholars and skeptics of the Bible say that it was impossible for Quirinius to have been governor when Jesus was born because the census he's associated with, there, are, there is, a, there is a, a specific census that Quirinius is associated with. Uh, it's, a, it's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, not Quirinius, but the census is mentioned. And so a lot of uh, biblical scholars say, no, 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 the census that Quirinius is recorded to have been part of couldn't have fit the time frame um, of this census that, uh, that Caesar Augustus gives. But then um, in 1764... Before most of us were born, right? Well, all of us. So in 1764, even before 1776, uh, when uh, we had this Declaration of Independence, in 1764, a stone fragment was uncovered in Tivoli. Tivoli is uh, just outside of Rome, and it contained an inscription that honored a Roman official that 
twice served as governor of where? Syria and Phoenicia during the reign of Augustus. So it, it was even that specific. Not only did he serve twice in Syria as the governor, but under the reign of Augustus. So we know that three leaders had to be Herod the Great, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. Luke mentions this specifically. So he served twice, and the name of the official was not on the fragment, uh, but the listed accomplishments could only really be applied to Quirinius. When you look at the accomplishments, they match Quirinius. So again, the fragment is not a full fragment, but these things happen. Um, bottom line is, when in doubt, always trust the Scriptures. Again and again, archaeolog- uh, you know, for archaeologists, uh, or say historians, I should say, historians for years said there was no such thing as the Hittite kingdom until archaeologists found proof that there was a Hittite kingdom. Uh, these things happen again and again. There's so many examples of them. But always trust the Scriptures. The Scriptures were clear that the Messiah would be born and that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, hundreds of years before it ever took place. And this census, it put in motion the necessity of Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel, uh, south, down to Galilee. Now that's them traveling 70 miles by foot and donkey, south to Bethlehem in a very mountainous region. It wasn't like today's interstate highway system. Our family drives down to Florida a few times a year. It's, it's a piece of cake for us. The kids watch 10 movies. You know, they got the interstate. You got satellite music. It's almost fun. Some of you hate driving. You say, no, it's not still fun. But, it, but walking 70 miles through mountainous terrain, not an ideal situation. This is not something you would normally do when you're in the late stages of pregnancy. How many of you ladies would say, hey, you know, let's take a 70-mile trek? <laughs> late stages of pregnancy... Something has to really force the issue for this to take place. Wouldn't you agree? But this was all part of God's divine plan. Because you don't normally do this in the late stages of prayer. You don't say, it's going to travel 70 miles. They hadn't done it before. But something made everyone have to react. Caesar Augustus made everybody react. But remember, it started, the the, the census was probably given a few years before. Isn't it interesting that it arrives to them just in time to push them south? This is actually, the the ripples are coming from a couple of years earlier, probably. Gets to them in time, they say, we got to move. All of a sudden, you know, some emissary comes into Nazareth, and he's got a seal from Caesar Augustus to say, you guys didn't hear this yet, but this has been given three or four years ago, and out of your one of you need to report ASAP. Well, my wife is pregnant. What do you think a Roman would say? Tough luck. But she didn't have to go anyway. Caesar, uh, well, um, she wasn't required by law to go, but we'll look at why she, why she would have. Now, Caesar, he was considered the king of the world. If, if uh, Herod was considered the king of the Jews, and that's the title the Roman Senate gave him, Caesar was considered the king of the world. But his decree was used by God to fulfill prophecies related to the entrance of the real king of the world. Isn't it interesting that the king of the world is involved, the king of the Jews is involved? And you have Caesar, and you have Herod, the great, and you have Quirinius, and yet they would all play a role in Christ's arrival and the prophetic fulfillment, just as Pilate and Herod Antipas later would play a role in his death, right? They would play a role 
and yet none of them realized they were all part of God's doing, right? None of them realized that God literally, God really does move the chess pieces, folks. He really does. If you're all up in arms sometimes about what's going on with world leaders, understand that he causes kings to rise and fall. He is still the one. And everything you see happen on the world stage is God's unfolding plan. It doesn't mean that it's all good stuff. Caesar was not good. Herod is going to murder a bunch of innocent babies. I mean, they, they, these, these leaders are, in many cases, vile men, but at the same time, God still is behind the scenes. His plan will go forward. In our lives, God will often use people in our lives many times that are unsaved people in your life and mine. I'm talking about where, the real world where you live. God will use people in your life and in my life. Many times they're disinterested in God, and yet God will use them to bring about things in your life and my life that will actually be part of his plan. In my own life, now I got, me and my wife, we got saved um, in 1995. But in 1999, we were living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was this close to moving to Dallas, Texas with a job transfer. And I, I, I was, it was a promotion to have a team that was a national team, and I was going to be moved to Dallas. And we were looking at houses and everything, and I flew to Dallas to, I already knew my boss's boss, but I had to meet him and spend the day with him. And I knew when I was there that I could tell he didn't like my faith in Christ. I knew it. I could feel it as I was riding around in his Jaguar, brand new. He had a home right across from Steve Berline, the Dallas Cowboys. As a matter of fact, when I first got hired, they, they told me, say, if you work here long enough, you're going to be a millionaire someday. God had other plans for me. I am not even, you know, none of that happened for me. <sighs> long story. But anyway... <laughs> So I was riding around with him, and I, and I could tell that the conversation went good, but I, I, if you've been around business, you just, I just knew he was not comfortable with me personally. And I got back to Charlotte, and at the last second, every, all the other managers were like, you got to go with Tim. And the last second, he pulled the rug on me and said, it's not going to be him. I've gone another, another direction. Well, that actually opened the door that God transferred me to Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> to someday pastor this church, which God had all his plans. So that... But he used someone that didn't like my faith in Christ to reroute me. And God will use people in your life to reroute you too. And don't be worried about it. It's true what Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. You have to say, Lord, this is part of your plan. He will use people that, um, again... You might not suspect, well, how, I thought you are only going to use Christian people in my life. No, it doesn't work that way at all. He uses a lot of people in our life. And he even, even used uh, Caesar Augustus. Again, we're last, go back to last week, Joseph might be scratching his head. Why am I going to go to, I don't live in Bethlehem. The Messiah has to be from Bethlehem. Very next week, everyone, go back to your home city. I got, well, I guess that's how I'm getting back to Bethlehem. Mary, would you like to go on a 70-mile journey? No. But she does. Let's take a look at what takes place next. Well, as Joseph and Mary are traveling to Bethlehem, you see in verses 6 and 7, so it was uh, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. As Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem, no doubt they're weary, just wanting to find a place to rest and get ready for the delivery. 
while they're traveling down, whether they're aware of this or not aware of it, Bethlehem is filling up. That little town is filling up. It's swelling. Matter of fact, any of the cities would have been swelling because people are having to head back to the place of their birth. Others, whose ancestry goes back to the same town, they're also coming to Bethlehem. And many of the other travelers, they probably weren't slowed down by a late-term pregnancy either. So the city's filling up. The town is filling up. But thankfully, they do finally make it there. God, by God's providence, they, they do get to Bethlehem. And understand that uh, Joseph, again, he didn't have to bring Mary. There was no Roman law that required uh, her to go. He was required to go uh, for the census, but he could have left her behind. But we can just surmise or, or, or take some educated guesses at maybe why did he bring her. One, God may have just flat out said, take Mary. That's probably the easiest. It could have been other things. Uh, the pregnancy itself, he may not have wanted to left, leave her there, even though she had family and things. Uh, you could have uh, the potential pressure of scandal and rumor. He's already kind of shielding that situation. So why leave her to endure more of that? Just come with me. Uh, all of these things. And maybe he just wanted to give her the comfort and peace that may, in many respects, the only ones that could relate to them were each other. So just to be together. Sometimes when you have someone you can relate to, you just say, hey, let's just chill together because we're the only ones that can relate in this situation anyway. But for whatever reason, and I'm sure there was more than one, he does bring Mary, even though he wasn't required by law. And all these factors, they combine together, so they arrive there in Bethlehem. And by the way, notice in verse 5 that Mary was with child. It doesn't say Mary's with fetus. Never says that in the Bible, by the way. It says she was with child. Before a human life is born, it's already a child. Amen. It's already a soul. Amen. Our modern day society likes to come up with these new words that might make us feel better about decision making, but the Bible makes it clear she was with child. And as this, this weary couple, as they enter Bethlehem, they come into town looking for a place to stay, but there's not a single room to be had. Nothing. Nothing available. It would appear that Joseph and Mary had arrived too late. But in God's sovereignty, they had arrived right on time. Amen. Not too late, right on time. If God has told you or me to do something, hear this out. If God has told you or me to do something in life, maybe it's go ahead and have a child. We'll be really bad parents. Have one anyway. Do you realize how bad we'll be? Yes, I do. Have one anyway, right? If God has told you to do something, take that job. But I, I'll fail at it. Take it anyway. Whatever it is, if God's told you and I to do something, and it doesn't go perfect, and guess what? It won't. Anything you do won't go perfect. Is anyone can, can you think of how many perfect things have you ever done in life? Perfect. I mean, not even a shred of a flaw. Remember, when we get to heaven, it says, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't say good and perfect servant. Amen. Faithful servant. But God's going to give you something to do, and don't get discouraged when it doesn't go according to plan. I was trimming the bushes yesterday to get the lights put on the bushes when I sliced the cord. <laughs> Pff, 
right in half. Because I was trying to save time, I actually plugged it into a different outlet, which actually doesn't let the cord stay behind me. It actually can get in front of me. You men know what I'm talking about, right? Didn't save any time. Cut the cord. Then I had to go find why the fuse had blown and all the other stuff, and I had to get another cord out and everything else. But I started laughing because I was, my own notes came into my head. God was like, I was like the Holy Spirit saying, you remember what you were going to say tomorrow about things don't go according to plan? And I actually ended up smiling through it, and I was like, all right, I have no idea what this serves other than an object lesson, because I still don't know what the value of it was yesterday, other than patience, because I wanted to take the cord and toss it in the woods and set it on fire or something else. Um, But at any rate, when God sends us in a direction, things will not always go according to plan. Things will go wrong. There'll be mistakes along the way. Uh, The doors will be closed like they were in Bethlehem. The doors will be closed to you at places that you know God sent you. You say, well, why am I here if the door is closed? Be patient. Another door will open. It might be closed at first, but that doesn't mean it's going to stay closed. All these things are very much a part of God's intended plan. He's always, by the way, the journey is always changing us, not God's end end state. The end state that God, he'll fix that, but along the way, he fixes us. And that said, hard times and rejection are never easy to deal with, though, are they? When you knock on doors in Bethlehem and and you are weary and tired and you're a stranger and no one has room for you, it doesn't feel good. You ever felt rejected? Doesn't feel good, does it? Never easy. It's why we have to learn to lean on the Lord and what he said, and not our feelings or even the circumstances. You have to ignore them sometimes. That's hard to do, but it's what we have to do. Imagine how difficult it is to hear, sorry, we have no room. Sorry, we have no room. Can't help you. Sorry, can't help you. There was no room for the newborn Messiah in the inn, nor in the homes there in Bethlehem. Even if there was room, nobody was offering it, apparently. There was no room for the son of David. The city was named. There was no room for the son of David, who Jesus is the very one that descended from that Dave, King David himself. There was no room for God in human flesh. There was no room in the homes of Bethlehem, just as there's no room today in many hearts. Even today, there's no room for many people for God. And it's sad. I mean, in our, I, I, again, we can enjoy the secular. There, there's a secular Christmas, and then there's the biblical Christmas. Uh, they're, they're two different things. You can enjoy the secular Christmas and, and laugh about some of those things, but don't let them replace the biblical Christmas. But in America today, many, whether it's Fortune 500 uh, retailers, they would like to just replace the biblical Christmas completely. There's no room in many places for God and the true message of his redemption. But there was, at the last moment, somewhere along the way there, the innkeeper or somebody said, hey, there is one spot left. Would you mind being in an animal stable? Well, when you got nowhere to go, an animal stable sounds, at least there's a covering. Most scholars believe that this was actually a cave if you go to Israel, when we were in Israel, we saw caves all over the place. Uh, most believe it was a cave, and inside the cave, it could go deep enough to have 
uh, a number of animals, and you could put a feeding trough to, to guard from the elements. But whether it was a cave or whether it was a built structure it isn't important. I mean, both, both uh, were things that were used. At the end of the day, though, it was a place that was for animals. It would smell like animals. And animals, by the way, they don't, they don't, they're not, they don't use the restroom uh, in places that make sense. They just go wherever they got to go. You know, they just take care of business right there. And so you've got this lovely environment, but at least it's shielded. And maybe it's a little bit warmer. And it's got straw, which actually can at least keep the baby warm. There was no room, but they had this place, the only available spot they had. So Jesus, who's the king and creator of all the cosmos, king of all creation, over every living thing, yet he left his majestic throne to put on human flesh made of dust and water. That's what we're made of, right? According to the scriptures, we're made of dust and water. We all will return to dust. And he left this incomprehensible glory and honor to humble himself and even his birth would reflect the lowering of himself, wouldn't it? His birth reflects this. At the end of his earthly life, he would go even lower, wouldn't he? At the end of his earthly life, he would go even lower, submitting himself to the humiliation and the agony of the cross. And even as the scriptures say, descending into the earth via his death. The lowly accommodations were a reflection of his humility and mankind's preoccupation with anything but God, right? Because they're, they're preoccupied with themselves, don't realize that God is in their midst. And while Jesus is quietly entering the world, an angel out of nowhere appears to announce it. If you're taking notes, a dedicated group, starting in verse 8 here. Now, there was in the same country shepherds living out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, living out in the field. This wasn't like the, well, we're just there tonight. Living out in the field. This Wednesday night, we're going to do some carols out in the field. It will not be like living out in the field. It will be about 40 minutes. You can dress for the occasion. You have no sheep to guard that night. No animal, wild animals to deal with or anything that we know of. Uh, that uh, of A fire roaring, all that kind of stuff. We will not be living out there. The rest of you want to stay and camp, feel, be our guests. But the rest of us will go home to real beds. And our, camp, our family's not the biggest into camping, by the way. We appreciate it from a distance. So um, <laughs> our idea of camping is the Hampton Inn. So um, now that we have electricity in this world, why? 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 Why get rained out in a tent? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm not a shepherd, so Why? And I'm not in the military. So uh, anyway, all you campers are saying, you've never really tried it with us. We, we have, you know. I've started something now. That'll be. You know, if God had wanted to, though, the angels are they're there. I mean, I'm sorry, the shepherds. The shepherds are there in the field. If God had wanted to, um, he comes to these shepherds. He could have come to anybody. But he comes to these shepherds, and it says in verse 9, and the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the Lord shone about them. If God had wanted to, not only could he come to anybody, but uh, this angel that comes and lights up the sky, lights up the darkness of the sky. If God had wanted to do this, he could have had an angel 
light up the entire dark side of planet Earth, and another angel darken the light side. God has the power to do that. One angel has incredible power. But instead, he just lights up this one little area in the hills of Bethlehem. He could have spoke loud enough. What angel could have spoke loud enough for every human being to hear, hear this, whether in the Pacific, whether they're on the other side of the Atlantic, whether in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia? One angel could have had a voice that everyone on planet Earth could have heard it at one time. But that's not what God did. Just as God came to a poor and lowly carpenter and his betrothed wife, he sends his angel, not to all the world, not for this announcement. And he doesn't send this angel to the wealthy and the influential. Not to the power brokers, not to the royalty, not to the well-respected, not to those living lives of comfort and ease. These guys were not living lives of comfort and ease. Living out in fields is tough. No, the angel sent by God appears to a group who their life's profession and vocation represents the heart of Jesus. Their vocation represents the heart of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Am I just guessing on this? No. It represents the heart of Jesus. It represents his ministry to all who would put their trust in him, and it's the role of a shepherd. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of his ministry. To watch over, to protect, to mend, to heal, to rescue, to help grow, and to lead to safety. This is what shepherds do. This is what Jesus does. Isaiah 63, 11 says that God shepherded the nation of Israel and he brought them up out of Egypt through the Red Sea. In the 23rd Psalm, it states the Lord is the good shepherd, right? We all know that. In Micah 7, 14, it says, shepherd your people, Israel, shepherd your people, not, not Israel, but it says, just shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage. God has a shepherd's heart. Christ has a shepherd's heart. Throughout history, we see um, that the world doesn't give a whole lot of place to shepherds. In ancient Egypt, it was considered the lowest of occupations. Did you know that? In ancient Egypt, being a shepherd was considered one of the lowest of low occupations. It's recorded for us in uh, Genesis 46, 34. It says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They thought it was a low, rotten, low, just filthy, abominable job. And all throughout history, even today, shepherds, they're not invited to the big-time parties. They're not invited to the ESPYs and the Grammys. They're not invited to the balls and the red carpet events. They're never one, they're never a job role that people consider power and prestige and wealth. You say, man, who's the most, it's got to be some shepherd. Nobody thinks that. You look at the awards given out around the world, the Nobel Peace Prize. The Pulitzers, the Grammys, the Oscars, the MVP Awards, the Presidential Medal of Honor, the Time Person of the Year. I've not seen a shepherd get this award yet. Have you? By the way, I don't ever see stay-at-home moms get it either. There's a lot of roles that are important in this world that the world 
doesn't think about or care about that God loves. Just, just be aware of that. You won't see shepherds, and you wouldn't have seen them in ancient times either. The hours of a shepherd were demanding, grueling. They were 24-hour days. You were always on the job. You were always watching. You were always caring for. You were always having to be vigilant and diligent. Do the amount of predators. By the way, there was way more animal predators in in an ancient society. They didn't have sprawling cities that kind of drove the animals further out into Yosemite or something kind of use our own landscape. You didn't have all the urban impact that you would have today, so you have more wild animals to deal with. That's why David had to kill both a lion and a bear as a shepherd. 100% care, 100% vigilance, 100% dedication was required. Well, prestige, there was none. Big paycheck, nope, didn't have that either. You were living off the land, Right? Kind of barter system. I'll give you a sheep. Can I have, you know, that kind of thing. It's a living off the land, barter, living on the land, off the land, bartering with what you have on the land. And if you met a shepherd, they weren't likely to smell good either. They were out there all the time. They didn't smell like the Irish Spring commercial, you know. The, you know remember those? But like so many other low-profile and low-paying jobs, the world really needs these people but generally doesn't appreciate them. Isn't that interesting? Do you realize that all the big shots that are making like $20 million bonuses, they can die tomorrow and the company will not miss a beat. But they need the people that are actually doing the work. You and I should have an appreciation for every person like God does. Amen? Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad that God loves and sees the lowly, that he loves and sees the forgotten, that he loves and sees the weary? On October 28, 1886, the Statue of Liberty was dedicated in a ceremony that was attended by upward of a million people looking out there uh, in New York Harbor. Three years earlier, three years prior to 1886, a poem titled The New Colossus had been written by a young Jewish woman by the name of Emma Lazarus. She died in 1887 of what was believed to have been Hodgkin's lymphoma, just one year after the Statue of Liberty's dedication. Then 15 years after her death, in 1903, a bronze plaque with the words of her poem was given to the Statue of Liberty. And those words have been synonymous with the iconic sculpture even to this day. The latter two-thirds of the poem, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the latter two-thirds of the poem read like this. It says, Mother of Exiles... From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, you storied pomp. Listen to that. Keep ancient lands, you storied pomp. That's That's the aristocracy around the world where people had to run from to get to the shores of the United States. Keep ancient lands, you storied pomp, she cries. With silent lips, give me your tired. You're poor. You're huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's the word she wrote before the dedication, before it ever was put, 1903, it finally makes it as a dedication to the plaque. Before she died, just a few years earlier, she wrote these words. 
Those sound like the people that Jesus would spend his life ministering to, don't they? The tired, the weary, the homeless, the looking for a door. Sounds a lot like the people Jesus would minister to. Now, as an interesting side note, the Christmas story is predominantly a Jewish story that takes place among the most despised and repeatedly attacked ethnic group of people in the history of the world, and that would be Israel. That's where it takes place. Anti-Semitism existed then. It exists today, sadly. And Emma Lazarus, she would um, no doubt, I, I believe no doubt in her mind, uh, were some of the Jewish people that she was, I believe she was thinking about some of her own people when she penned these encouraging words that have today blessed millions from countries all over the world. She became increasingly interested in the plight, it's just a side note of, of her, but she became uh, increasingly interested in the plight of Jewish people, of which she was Jewish, but she hadn't been all that interested in the plight of Jewish people until in, uh, in the 1880s, starting in 1881, many Jewish refugees were fleeing Russia after the Tsar had died, and there was intense persecution and pogroms where they were actually just uh, pillaging Jewish communities, and so many of them fled to the United States. And her poem you know, kind of has some of that in it, but I believe it's applicable to immigrants from all over the world, whether Jewish or Gentile, and that's, of course, why it's there today, because it speaks to everyone, all of those that are downtrodden. But these Bethlehem shepherds, on the night that Jesus was born, just like shepherds around the world, they were basically poor. They were undistinguished. They were of little interest to anybody who had power and position. It wasn't like Herod was actually inviting them for feast, even though Jerusalem was only six miles away. But what the world undervalues, God typically has a special role for and love for. Understand that. Those kids that were doing the play, God has a special value for and love for what the world undervalues. So don't be as impressed with New York City's extravagant handle Messiah. Be more impressed with some little, not much power position person that's in love with Jesus. Amen. Jacob, later named Israel, was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Matter of fact, Samuel didn't think he could possibly be the and very spiritual of you, Samuel, to, to arrive at this conclusion, right? All of them are shepherds. Once David was tending the very hills of Bethlehem that these shepherds were on, the same place that the shepherds on this momentous night would be. So the namesake of the nation of Israel, Jacob, the deliverer of the nation, Moses, the greatest king of the nation, David, were all shepherds. Coincidence? No. God often takes those that are undervalued and puts them in a position to have great value for him, for his glory. These lowly, probably tired, perhaps very cold, possibly hot. We don't know what time of year it was. We do not know if this came in December or if it was another time of the year. The shepherds, they're the ones that God wants to know. And shepherds, he wants them to know that a shepherd greater than Moses, greater than Jacob, greater than David, 
is about to arrive. I'm going to look at that proclamation as we start to wrap this up. In verses 9 through 14, we see what takes place. There's an angel that suddenly stands before them. The glory of the Lord shines around them. Verse 10, do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy. Verse 11, there'll be born to you today in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then he tells them how you'll find him. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be in a manger. And then, they, uh, and then all of a sudden, an entire heavenly host, well, just one angel, but all of a sudden, instantaneously, there's many angels lighting up the night sky. What seemed like a night like any other is suddenly awakened by an angel that displays some of the light of God's glory. If it was all of God's glory, they would have died. Some of God's glory. It is the glory of the Lord, but it's not the full manifestation. It's enough to get anyone's attention, though. In other words, one angel lights up the sky even before the multitude arrives. In Isaiah 9, 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Isaiah 9, 2. The shepherds, like the rest of humanity, well, they're living in a dark and fallen world. That night, they were living in a dark and fallen world. That's all they had known. Satan and the rulers of the nations that he had empowered in the, in, in, in before that time, including Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece, and of course, the Roman Empire at that time, were all led by darkness. And those nations had caused many people to die, hadn't they? It brought a lot of bloodshed and death. But as the angel lights the sky with the glory of God, it's a picture. It's a visual representation of Isaiah 9-2. That the light of God that pierced the darkness at the dawn of creation is now coming down to pierce it again. Emmanuel, God with us. Remember in the beginning God said, let there be what? Light. It was dark before that. He said, let there be light. And of course it was a dark night and the angel Lights up the sky. It's a picture of God piercing the darkness. To pierce the darkness of sin, to pierce the darkness of evil, to pierce the blindness of hearts. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5. John 3.19, light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were what? Evil. Now the Bible also says that we were created in the image of God. This is before sin and before the fall. Everybody likes lights. Kids like lights. Bush Gardens likes lights. Light, Lewis Ginter, whatever it's called, likes lights. Everybody likes lights. We like lights. See, we've got them up here. It's interesting. New York City, Hong Kong, London, fireworks, light shows. Everybody likes lights. And yet, while mankind loves darkness, there's some attraction that we have to lights in us. We're created in the image of God. We're attracted to darkness because of the heart, but we're attracted to light because God has actually put a conscience in us. We're creating his image, but the true light is the one the Father is sending. True light. The angel's response to this, uh, the shepherd's response to this sudden burst of light uh, in the presence of uh, all of this angelic host, is they're immediately afraid, petrified. By the way, this is the common response to angels everywhere in the Bible. Have you ever noticed this? Every time. 
This should make you doubt a lot of the books on bookshelves. These touched by an angel books that, that, yeah, me and the angel, we were just floating around together and we were doing this and we were doing that and we rode bikes together and I don't know, whatever, you know. You never see this in scripture. Every time there's an angel, the people are petrified. So I don't buy a lot of these books. I don't literally buy them, but I don't buy the stories behind a lot of them because what the Bible says is a lot more trustworthy than all these other stories. They really are angels. And when they happen in our lives, the Bible says we're usually either unaware of them completely, they were una- we were unaware of them, or we were deathly afraid. But this middle ground of we were chit-chatting and we were, you know, all this other stuff, we floated over the cities and I saw Grandpa over here on the other side of the world and, you know, not in the Bible. The first declaration from the angel is the essence of the gospel. Good tidings of great joy. The essence of the gospel, it's good news that great joy, if accepted, is for all people, every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, every skin color, every language, and why it's such a testimony for this church when we're made up of people from all over. Because we look like the very world that God came to save. But the angel goes on and tells that the deliverer is the anointed one, a Savior who is Christ. This is who's coming, the Savior. Did I cook? Oh, I got the last one here. Verses 15 through 20. The good news that they pronounce, the good news, he says, uh, the, uh, the angel says, good news For you is born this day to you. The good news is for them personally. The good news is for you and I personally. All of mankind, of course, but us personally. But like the gospel, it requires a response. It requires a belief. It requires an acceptance. It requires an appreciation. It requires an action. When good news is presented to us, when the gospel is presented to us, some news is so big and so important, so amazing that it alters any plans you have. I remember the day, that, the day me and my wife got saved um, in 1995. We were not thinking about, where should we go to lunch after this? Do we want pizza? Do we want burgers? Uh, you know, it, those thoughts escaped because bigger things had filled our hearts. Something far more important had invaded our mind and our conscience. These shepherds, they may have been tired. They may have been concerned about, what do we do with the sheep? We never leave the sheep. What do we do with the sheep? They might still be rattled, still shaking from the fear that they had. But the good news, the supernatural news, says go. Glory to God in the highest. This is great news. Peace. And so it was, the angel said in verse, uh, the, the shepherd said, let us now go, in verse 15, to Bethlehem. Let us go. If you still don't know Christ is your Savior, the Spirit now says to you, go to him. He's already come to you. Go to him. He's already come to you. He's already come to this world. He's already come to your heart. But you still have to say, yes, Lord, I accept. I believe. I'm going to go to the feet of Jesus. They saw for themselves. They went to Bethlehem. They did find the child exactly as the angels had said. They found the child and they found for themselves, the Savior of the world. They saw the face of God. 
Savior. They saw in this newborn baby. They saw Emmanuel. They saw Messiah. They saw Savior. They saw Jesus. Lord Byron said, if ever man was God or God-man, Jesus Christ was both. Henry Law says, in Christ Jesus, heaven meets earth, and the earth ascends to heaven. If you've seen the light of Christ pierce the darkness, if you've seen the face of the Lord, if heaven has come down and touched your life, how can you not go and share it? Which is what they now go do. They go and share it. It says that they made this widely known. Well, you might say, well, I'm more like Mary. I just ponder it all in my heart. Don't use Mary as an excuse. I just, I just ponder all these things. Well, that's good. You're supposed to ponder these things. It's why we sit under the Word of God, why you read the Bible, why you pray. It's not an either-or, but a both-and. You are to ponder these things. Because if, if we stop pondering them, we'll stop appreciating what God has done, and we'll absolutely stop sharing it once we stop appreciating it. But likewise, if we stop sharing, we'll stop worshiping and appreciating it. Sharing actually actually helps you continue in it, and pondering these things helps you share it. They are two sides of the same coin. That's why we see both of them here. You look at verse 20, the last verse here, the shepherds return glorifying God and praising God. See, that's actually worship. That's not them sharing. That's just their personal worship. They did both. They shared it, but they also were worshipers. They were the true worshipers, which Jesus speaks of in John chapter 4. They were worshipers, and they were witnesses. How about you? Are you a worshiper? Are you a witnesser? I don't know if that's a word or not, but anyway. Are you both? Or are you both? You see, the announcement from heaven, it didn't stay in heaven, did it? No, God spoke it to us. And if we received it and believed it, we're to take that announcement to others. We're to proclaim it. That song that the, the kids and the choirs love to sing around Christmas, Go Tell It on the Mountain, you're supposed to go tell it at Starbucks and your doctor's office and work and the family get-togethers. Get and, you know, I'm not talking about just come up and just grab people and say, I've got something to say to you today. You know, that, I'm not saying that. But in the, in the course of life, that you look for the open opportunities to proclaim and spread the message that Jesus has come, to go and make him widely known, that the only answer to sin and pain and guilt and shame and death and darkness has come, and his name is Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's come that we might have life. Let's close. Lord, we gather here this morning only in the light of your grace. Thank you for coming. Thank you for proclaiming light in the darkness of this world. Thank you, Lord, that you love the greatest to the least. And that, Lord, you haven't hidden this message from us. Yes, you told it to only a few shepherds that night, but it's been echoing ever since. And, Lord, we've come to saving faith if we're here and born again this morning because you've been faithful to raise up many that have made you widely known. And we pray, Lord, that we would be truly rejoicing in this good news, truly worshipers, and, Lord, go out as a witness for you in the times in which we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.